Uh, good, good morning to you all. I'm really glad you're here. I uh, just got back from a week up with our sister or daughter church. I'm not quite sure how that works, but one of our North Wake church plants in Martinsville, Virginia. Uh, spent the week there with about 20 of our students who gave up their spring break to go uh, serve Uptown Church by providing a whole bunch of manpower to engage in, in some pretty legit community service and uh, helping create uh, just some good connections and rapport for Uptown Church in the community there. And uh, all these students worked really, really hard. Uh, I don't know that any of them are in this service, but if you see some of them, uh, some of them nodding off, you can just have some compassion on them and give them a gentle nudge. If you see me nodding off, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Uh, wake me up when it's over, I guess. Uh, but, you know, these, these types of trips from this past week, they bring back a lot of memories for me. I used to go on trips like this with, with my youth group when, when I was a teenager. And before I would leave on these trips, uh, my mom would say something along these lines to me. Maybe it'll sound familiar to you too. Uh, she would say, now, don't you forget who you belong to. You know, you're going to load up on the van or the bus, and she's like, don't you forget who you belong to. And I guess she could have meant a couple of things by that, you know, one being, you better remember who your mama is, and if you engage in any sort of illegal, idiotic, or immoral shenanigans, you know, your scrawny hide is mine when you get back home, buddy. Uh, or maybe she just meant, you know, remember who you belong to, as in Cobb's, don't engage in idiotic, illegal, or immoral shenanigans. Uh, but in either case, I suppose that my mom was concerned that if I forgot who I belonged to, that it would have an adverse effect on my attitude, my actions, my choices, my behavior, the way I carried myself on the trip. But if I, if that, if I would remember who I belonged to, if I re remember where I came from, that this would have a positive effect on my actions, my attitude, my choices, and my behavior. And so this, this year, our elders have set as a focus for our church this idea that we belong to Christ, and we are His people. And so we want to be captivated by that truth and remember it so that it would change our lives and our behavior, how we think and how we live, such that we would be in awe of that privilege and that we would respond to Christ in willing and full obedience and that we would also be eager to invite others to join with us in belonging to Christ. And so one of the things that we've been doing in order, in order to stir up that truth within us is to study the book of Joshua together. And it's been several weeks since we were in Joshua after a really fantastic Lent series. Uh, but today we will pick up right where we left off, and that's in the last bit of Joshua chapter 5. And through this passage, uh, I think we'll be taught in a, very, in a very striking and powerful way just who it is that we belong to. And so our, my prayer today for us is that we would we would fully embrace this picture of God and who He is so that we would be deeply affected in the way that we live, in the way that we feel, and the things that we choose uh, even this week. So if you will, let's pray together. Pray for me, and I'll pray for you uh, as, as we open God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we do come to you this morning asking that you would help us to do much more than just hear a sermon or get through a sermon. Uh, 
I pray that we would come face to face with you, that we would hear from you, that we would see you today in your goodness, your justice, and your mercy, that we might know again what it means to belong to you, and that we would be changed by this. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Okay, so the book of Joshua thus far, if you remember, the book opens with the death of Israel's great leader, Moses. And so now the mantle of leadership falls upon Joshua and the directive to lead the Israelites into this land promised by God to their great, 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 great ancestor Abraham hundreds of years prior now has fallen to Joshua. And so each step of the way in this new land, God has been reminding the Israelites of his presence and his power with them by verbally promising to be with them. And we saw that in chapter 1 and by protecting them from the hostile peoples in the land. And then he proved his great strength over and above the Canaanite gods in chapters 3 and 4 by miraculous works like drying up the Jordan River. Uh, And then in chapter 5 where we left off, God purified his people as they renewed their covenant with him through the keeping of the Passover meal and then the circumcision of all the menfolk, which I'm sure was a sore subject among them for quite some time. Uh, Yeah, poor poor choice of words. Anyway, uh, all that brings us now to the end of chapter 5, where Joshua is preparing to lead the people on their most daring conquest yet. Uh, And it's going to be a battle for the seemingly impenetrable fortress of Jericho. So let's pick up in verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So to pause here for just a second, you see Joshua, he's going out, uh, most likely to take stock of Jericho and its defenses and the walls, and probably to pray as well, because Jericho was a bit like the Fort Knox of Canaan. It was the primary fortress. You know, Fort Knox in Louisville, you know, it's the place that holds uh, the Federal Reserve of gold bullion, and in the past has held things like the Crown Jewels and the Magna Carta and the U.S. Constitution, you know, important stuff. Uh, But right now there's approximately, uh, according to the audit that happened last year, about $250 billion, with a B, dollars worth of gold in Fort Knox. And it's all locked away behind a 22-ton vault door that has a coded combination that must be entered by multiple staff members who only know the partial little piece of the code, their part of the code, And, of course, that vault door is behind granite walls, fences, guards, dogs, alarms, along with some tanks and Apache helicopters, just in case, you know, they didn't get it locked down good enough. So, you could have $250 billion uh, if you and your hunting buddies want to get together and have a go. Um, But uh, my guess would be it's probably not going to go so well. And this is probably not too much of a stretch uh, for what it's like to think about Uh, the inexperienced Israelite militia of former slave children taking on the fortress of Jericho. 
And so as Joshua goes out to scope out the fort, he meets this stranger who's got his sword drawn in his hand. So Joshua confronts him and asks, I think, a pretty good question to ask somebody who's standing there with their sword out. Whose side are you on? Are you on my side or are you on the other side? Of course, his reply is really interesting. He just says, no, (laughs) Uh, neither, I guess. I'm the commander of the Lord's army. And now much has been debated over the exact identity of this angelic character, this angel of the Lord character. You know, is he like a high-ranking angel, or is this somehow God himself in a human-ish appearance? And I don't intend to settle that debate for you today, but at a bare minimum, we can say that this angel obviously speaks for God and commands the angelic army of God, and as such... (laughs) He is to be obeyed like you would obey God. And so notice Joshua's response to the commander. He just falls to the ground and simply asks, what does my master say to his servant? You know, that's a pretty good way, I think, to start a conversation with God. Uh, And it's good that Joshua embraces full submission to the commands of the Lord before he even gets them. Because the commands that the Lord is going to give him, and sometimes the ones that he gives us, will seem a little counterintuitive to us at best, and maybe sometimes just a bit crazy. Uh, So what does God ask of Joshua? Let's keep reading, and this begins chapter 6. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out, and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, And the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. Okay, so that's the plan. Yes, that's the plan. Okay, did I miss any sevens somewhere in the plan? Okay, so what what does Joshua do in response to this plan? Look at verse 6. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests together and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth. Until the day I tell you to shout, then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. 
On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. And it was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priest had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Okay, so as you read this account of the Battle of Jericho, you may have been expecting, or at some point I kind of started to expect, a little more action. You know, maybe some explosions or something. Uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure if this were to be adapted into film today, there would be at least 30 minutes you know, of CGI wall, walls toppling down and some intense slow motion battle scenes that make the Israelites look like trained samurai. But uh, the biblical account really mentions very little of the battle itself. Instead, as you probably noticed if you stayed awake through it, um, it makes, it spends all of its time discussing all these particular little details of the ritual leading up to the battle and of then of the obedience of the people following all those little details. You know, you almost get droned out by the line-by-line, play-by-play instructions regarding who's supposed to walk where and when and how long to do that for. And you know, so what's all the point of, of all that? Where's the action, right? And I think probably the reason for all of the camera focus, if you will, to be on the instructions of the Lord and the repeated obedience of the people to those instructions and not the battle scene itself is because the text is making it, trying to make it really, really clear that this victory in no uncertain terms belongs to the Lord. And the people's part in this victory hinges solely upon their faith in Him and His words, and not on their skill, not on their might, and not on their military ingenuity. I mean, you can imagine walking around a great city like Jericho. You look up at these high, impenetrable walls. You don't have ladders that can reach to the top of the walls. You don't have a great battering ram to smash down the gates. You don't have an army of cave trolls that can throw big rocks into the city for you. So what's going on in your mind, you know, as, as you walk around the circumference of the city, and then you're told to do it again the next day, and then you're told to do it again the next day, and then you do it again, and then you do it again, and then on the last day, you do it seven times. <laughs> At this point, you've probably named all the stones in the wall, you know, and you are going to come to the conclusion, my guess would be, that unless God fights for you, This wall is not coming down, (laughs) and your only hope for victory would be your obedience to the plan that God has has given you. And this is why the Ark of the Covenant, this, this box that symbolized God's presence with His people, was central in the march and critically positioned. Uh, Commentator Dale Davis, I think, says it really well, helps capture the point. He says, it's the Lord's presence in the midst of His people that will make the difference. If Israel only marches and shouts, there will be no doubt about who batters Jericho to the ground. And God still functions this way. His normal pattern is to work through the instrumentality of His people. Normal stuff, normal ways. But since we have this tendency to obscure God's splendor and steal His praise, He sometimes sets our contributions aside so that we and others can perceive that the overwhelming power comes from God and not from us. Uh, In other words, you might say that sometimes God stacks the deck in our lives with impossible situations so that we'll learn to recognize our limits 
and lean on him in desperation. And then we get to watch him fight on our behalf. And all the other little details in in that passage regarding the number seven and the silence of the people, that only reinforces this, this theme, right? So in Scripture, the number seven typically is used to represent completion or perfection, you know, being done. Uh, It's used after the Lord creates the heavens and the earth in Genesis, that he completes, he perfects his work, and then he rests on the seventh seventh day. And these numbers are also used in many of the Israelite feasts and celebrations that remember the work of God on their behalf in their past and anticipate his future work when he brings his final rest with his kingdom. And so the seven priests, the seven horns, the seven days, the seven laps around the city, all those things are simply there to make it really, really clear who is doing the fighting, whose battle this is, and who brings the rest, and it's the Lord. And as for the people, all that's required of them is their obedient faith. And for the great majority of the time, this faith is exercised simply in silence. Now, did you notice the command of of Joshua, I'm thinking about memorizing this verse for when I go on future youth trips. He says, you shall not shout or make your voice heard. Neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. You know, I, and I guess it takes a great deal of faith to simply walk around and to be silent when your tendency would want to be to, to fight and come up with a plan. And I suppose it also took great faith to shout when it was time to shout and to believe that God would actually do what he said that he was going to do. And so the New Testament really mentions Jericho just once, but it makes a brief and critical comment about the battle. It says, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. You see, patient, persevering, faith-fueled obedience to the words of God is what brings victory for these people and for us too. Lamentations chapter 3. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul that seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Isaiah 64. From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for Him. So I don't know what what walls you might find yourself up against, but I do know that waiting on the Lord in obedience to not abandon Him when the walls are still up, this will be your victory. And there may be six days of silent marching for every one day of joyful shouting, but your silent, persevering, patient, mundane obedience to God still really matters even when his commands to you don't seem to make a whole lot of sense. And if the first Joshua was a captain to be obeyed at his every word, so much more the second Joshua, Jesus. It's really the same name in the Bible. He is a great captain, and he is to be obeyed, and we belong to him. So let me encourage you, if you find yourself Um, in a situation that feels impossible and you feel like God has not yet come through for you, continue in faith. Continue in obedience. Even when it's boring, even when it it seems pointless, even when it seems like it's quote-unquote not working, even when the walls are still standing. 
So not only is the Lord a great captain to be obeyed, he is also a great judge. Uh, Let's return to finish out Joshua's instructions in verse 17. He said, And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. And so the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. And so we have these few short verses that describe the actual defeat of Jericho, which sounds like a pretty incredible thing, you know, unless you are the Canaanites, of course. Uh, According to Joshua's command given from the Lord, All that live in the city are to be put to death. And without question, you know, this is a hard thing to grapple with. Isn't God supposed to be loving? Uh, Doesn't Jesus reject the use of violence and force in the advancement of his kingdom? Why everyone in the city, men, women, young, old, why everyone? And uh, I, I don't feel like I will probably be able to fully address and answer all the questions we might have about this section of the passage today. So we will post a couple of articles on our website for you to read and dig a bit further on this week if, if you'd like to do that. And of course, after the service, you're welcome to come talk with me uh, as well. But in the time that we do have, let me try to quickly lay out for you what I see as the two primary reasons that the Bible indicates why God would give this unique command to destroy all of these people. Uh, And the two reasons, I'll give them to you and then I'll try to explain them to you. First would be to judge the Canaanites for their prolonged, unbridled wickedness. And related to that is the second. And this is to prevent the spread of this kind of moral degradation to the Israelites themselves. And God makes this abundantly clear to the Israelites before they go into the land. In the book previous to Joshua, in Deuteronomy chapter 9, Moses tells them, he says, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, whereas it's because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then again in Deuteronomy chapter 12, when the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods? that I may also do the same. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. 
And so here in Joshua 6, we stumble upon a longer story of God and the Canaanites. And the arrival of Israel to dispossess and even destroy some of them is now the judgment of God upon these people for their abominable practices. And you can read more about this in places like Leviticus chapter 18, things like idolatry and incest and bestiality. But repeatedly, special notice seems to be given to their worship practices of burning children alive as offerings to their Canaanite gods. Uh, But what's even more incredible about this story is if you back all the way up, even to the first book of the Bible, to Genesis chapter 15, when God first promises this land to Abraham, he tells Abraham that he will not be able to have this land right away, that he has to wait, and his descendants will have to wait and be slaves in a foreign land for over 400 years. And then the reason that he gives is he says, it's because the iniquity of the people of the land is not yet complete. In other words, their iniquity does not yet warrant my destruction, and I will be patient until the time has come. And so all these vile practices were carried on for hundreds and hundreds of years, and yet God was patient, not desiring to destroy them until their wickedness was no longer bearable. And think about it this way with me for for a moment. Um, If your children were taken from you, If your children were beaten or burned by some rogue terrorist group in worship to their gods, and you were the commander of an Air Force squadron that found the group's location, how long do you think you would wait before you called down the airstrike? How long do you think you would wait? For 400 years at least, God tolerated the utter desecration of his own creatures. It's not as if God does not care about the people in Jericho, but even by his own creatures they are desecrated. And so we can read a passage like Joshua 6 and begin to think that maybe God is somehow cold-hearted or bloodthirsty, but you must remember that he waited because he does not enjoy this work of judgment. He loves to save. He loves to be patient. And in the modern era, I think it's tempting for us to want to take the moral high ground on God, you know, acting as if we could know better than Him or instruct Him in His ethics, forgetting that, as Paul says in Romans chapter 9, that for the clay to accuse the potter of foolishness is foolishness itself. God has the right to give life, and He has the right to take it. And when you think about how long-suffering God was with the Canaanites and how long-suffering He is with us, the children of man, and how He puts up with our incessant insults and violence against one another, His own world, His own creatures, our own brothers, what is remarkable to me is not God's punishment, but it's His patience. And He says this to Israel themselves after they do adopt many of the practices of the Canaanites. In Ezekiel chapter 33, He says, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? And then this is repeated in the New Testament, Second Peter chapter 3 Uh, Peter writes, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, meaning to return to the earth visibly, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So hear the heart of God today. 
His kindness, His patience is meant to lead us to repent of our sin and not to repeat it. He's eager that we would return to Him. And yet, because God is good and because He loves what is good, He must hate evil. And there does come a day where He chooses to deal with it. I mean, it's incredibly disturbing to think that this nation had come to such a place where their gross immorality warrants total annihilation. But apparently so it was. And this calls to mind to me uh, two inescapable questions that I feel like I must ask about myself and that we must grapple with as a church. The first being, do I take my own sin seriously? Like, do I take sin lightly? Ask yourself, I mean, do you see where this leads? Do you see the horror of where a life far from God takes you? It leads to utter destruction. Uh, Paul, even writing to the church in Colossae, he said this, he said, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, evil passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. So what's Paul saying? He's saying these are the sorts of things that call for God's judgment and stir up his justice. So why would you want to continue to live in them when you do not belong to them any longer? So we must not, we must not make the mistake of confusing God's patience for our sin with his approval of our sin. We must not think that because he is silent that he is somehow apathetic. And so the question that I, the second question that I feel like we must ask is, do I take the coming judgment of God seriously? Meaning, do I have a deep and moving concern for my friends and neighbors and family who are still far from God? You know, do you ever weep for those you know who are far from God? And I can't speak for all of us, but I can speak for myself, and I can probably speak for many of us when I say that I need more tears for those who are far from God. I need to be more deeply broken for them. And so perhaps one thing that we can do is even before we pray for open doors to speak with others about Jesus, we ought to pray for tender hearts that care about the fate of those that we love. Because truly, the destruction of Jericho, it's merely the crushing of an anthill compared to the last day when the true Joshua will come from heaven and the trumpets of the angels will sound and all the world's walls will crash down. And on that day, the deliverance of some will be the desolation of others. And so let's ask the Lord, let's pray and plead with him that we would begin to feel as he feels, that we would have compassion and tears, that our hearts would go out to those who are still inside Jericho. So the Lord is a great captain to be obeyed. And he is a great judge to be feared. Uh, but I'm most thankful that our story <laughs> does not end here. The Lord is also a great Savior to be embraced. Verse 22. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. 
So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought out all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put in the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent out to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Curse before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his foundation shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. So if you remember from chapter 2 of Joshua uh, several weeks ago now, Rahab was the Canaanite prostitute who believed in the God of Israel. And because she believed, she hid these two men who had previously come to Jericho to spy it out. And apparently Rahab knows that Jericho has judgment coming. And so she cast herself upon the mercy of the God of Israel, and she is spared, she and her whole family. And you might read the story and say, wait a minute, okay, Rahab the prostitute? Uh, Okay, wait a minute, given everything that you just told me about Canaanite culture, what must the life of a Canaanite prostitute be like? Would not she be most deeply immersed in the immorality of that culture? Why spare her? Hebrews 11, once again, by faith. Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. You see, God isn't looking for people who are righteous, just people who repent. And he's not looking for people who have it all together, just those who will admit that they don't have it together, that they are under God's judgment, and then will run to him for mercy. And Rahab is not the only prostitute and not the only Canaanite in the Bible to figure this out well before some of the more religious types. And you can read about this in the Gospels in places like Matthew 15 and Luke chapter 7. Mere religiosity is no guarantee of salvation. And so the more that I reflect on this passage, the more that I reflect on on Rahab, the more I resonate with her character. Uh, I suppose ever since I was a boy, you know, I've wanted to read myself into this story as the hero, Joshua. You know, who doesn't want to read the story and, and be the hero? I think I even remember pretty vividly as a kid at the beach, I had just learned the Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, you know, song in, in Sunday school. And so I'm like punching these waves coming at me singing the song. And yet now as I read the story, uh, I don't think I'm the hero. I think I'm Rahab. And I hope that you are too, in, in a sense. Um, at my core, I know that I, like Rahab, have worshipped other gods. And I have sold myself to them. I have been guilty of harlotry of the heart. And so I deserve God's final judgment just as much as the inhabitants of Jericho did. And yet, our Joshua, Jesus the Christ, the only Son of God. He was punished like an idolatrous Canaanite bearing the judgment of God so that I 
the harlot of the heart, so that Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, and any others who would fling themselves upon him in faith could be treated like God's own family, God's own people. Uh, You see, Rahab eventually becomes fully integrated into the Israelite people. Uh, So much so that when you read Matthew chapter 1, you find that she's part of the physical genealogy of Jesus Christ himself. God loves to save and to embrace and to redeem the Rahabs of the world. And so what I'm saying is, when you will throw yourself upon God as your Savior, He becomes to you so much more than a judge, so much more than even a captain. He becomes your true Father. And if Joshua, the first Joshua, was mighty to save this Canaanite prostitute, how much more will the true Joshua truly save any who turn to him? I mean, you get the sense when you read the chapter that Joshua is determined that this lady is making it out alive. His command to protect her and rescue her is repeated multiple times through the passage. He commits to save any who call on him by faith. And so it is for us. Any who would turn from their gods to the true and living God will find themselves rescued from the city of destruction and brought safely into the land of rest. And if you do not know that, this is for you today. And if you do know that, this is not just for you. This is for the least likely, the least moral even. So yes, God is a great judge But today, he longs to be your great Savior. So will you run to him? Let's take a moment uh, as the team comes up and as we prepare to just to sing and to worship, to give praise to our great God. uh, Let's reflect. Let's ask God what he needs to teach us from this passage, how our view of him needs to be changed. So let's pray together for, for just a moment. Our great God, would you impress upon our hearts now what ways each of us need to remember just who it is we belong to. Uh, Perhaps today, once again, we need to embrace your lordship, the fact that you are our captain over our lives. Perhaps we have lost reverence for you, that we approach you so casually and flippantly that we do not come to you and say, What is your word for your servant? We are here to obey. Perhaps today some of us need to feel the weight of unrepentant sin that we have not turned from. And we need to see the death and destruction that it brings so that we would forsake it and that we would turn to you, to you who longs to be patient and loves to forgive. And Lord, for many of us, we need to pray for greater brokenness for the fate of those who are far from you, that we would just care more deeply so that we would look for and we would find and we would seek out opportunities to speak of the great hope that we have in you. Or perhaps for some of us today, we are recognizing that we are Rahab and that though we are guilty, you love to pardon. And if that's us, I pray that we would just run to you, that we would run to you today and receive your mercy and love and adoption into your family. So would you teach us now, would you teach us from your word what it is we need to know and believe about who we belong to so that we might live in light of that. 
And we pray all this through our Joshua, our captain, our judge, and our savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, If anything that we talked about today that you have questions about or would like to talk or pray with someone, I'll just let you know that you're welcome to come up front as we sing and we'll sit and talk and pray together. Uh, Or anytime at the end of our services, um, myself and our pastors and elders are always available to speak with you and and pray with you. So take advantage of, of that time. And now let's stand together, let's sing and let's worship our God who is great.